everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. I am thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Yulun Wong. Uh, so many, so many different initiatives and research efforts and startups, starting back with Computer Motion, moving on to InTouch, then the World Telehealth Initiative, and now Savada. So Dr. Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I would love to get the audience to understand kind of just your your trajectory, your story. Um, I know that I found so interesting your story of how you started your work in, in the healthcare field. Um, maybe you can just give us a taste of how you got into all of these, um, you know, big impacts where you basically revolutionized how we deliver virtual care today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, I, I studied uh, engineering in school and uh, and then it, we're talking in the 1980s now and the IBM PC, if you remember, it was launched in 1981. So it was the rage. And I was thinking about what's next after the PC and I thought, huh, robots they got to be the next thing so i that's what i studied i have a phd where i focused on uh, the computational nature of advanced robotics so then when i finished my schooling at um, the university of california in santa barbara I, I i taught there for a couple of years while i got my first company going it was called computer motion and computer motion was the first company to do surgical robots we had the first um, fda cleared Surgical robot, it was called ESOP, uh, which was a single arm which held the laparoscopic camera for laparoscopic surgery uh, um, so that the surgeon could have direct control of their eyes. And so that company, uh, Computer Motion, went forward and it went public. And then it ended up um, merging with a company called Intuitive Surgical in 2003. And that Intuitive Surgical makes the Da Vinci surgical robot, which is, I think there's about 8,000 of them out there now. They're, they're by far the leader in surgical robotics. Um, but before that, sur uh, before computer motion became part of Intuitive, uh, we did an interesting case, uh, an interesting surgery. It was actually done on September 7th, 2001. And on that day, uh, Professor Jacques Moresco, who's a French uh, surgeon, he flew to New York City and he sat in a telecom center in Manhattan. And from that telecom center, he took out the gallbladder surgically of a patient who was laying in an operating table in Strasbourg, France. It's known as the Lindbergh operation because Charles Lindbergh was the first to cross the Atlantic Ocean and this was the first surgery across the Atlantic Ocean or just to do telesurgery by that manner. And so that surgery took place back in 2001. Um, and then computer motion became part of uh, intuitive surgical. And, that, and so at that, that point in time, I had the opportunity to start something new again. And, and then having experienced that surgery, I thought, telemedicine was going to be the next big thing. And so it, it wasn't, the world wasn't yet ready for telesurgery, but um, I, I, I was under the uh, belief that the world was ready for telemedicine, as in having doctors take care of patients far away. And so I started a company called InTouch Health. 
in InTouch Health uh, over the you know following um, 15 years or so, it became the um, the largest um, provider of telemedicine technology to hospitals and health systems around this country, at least. Uh, and then, it, you know, we had a worldwide footprint. And then that company, InTouch Health, was um, uh, acquired by Teladoc Health in 2020. And that and Teladoc already, ha already had a significant business selling to insurance companies and self-insured employers. And by having InTouch Health as part of its suite of um, products and services, then it also had a nice channel into hospitals and health systems. And so that so that's part of um, you know so that's that's how the InTouch story kind of went. Sorry, if I if I could just interrupt there. How did you go from telesurgery to telehealth in the sense of one is a very hands-on delivering direct procedural care to taking that step back into more of the ENM, both of them are in the inpatient setting. But how did you see that connection and that missing need? Well, so um, you know, as I mentioned in 2001, we did that telesurgery, but didn't think that the 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 world was ready for remote surgery. But if you talk to any surgeon or even clinician for that matter, they say it's not the hands, it's what's between the ears, which matters. And so the idea of InTouch was how do we actually project that, you know, highly skilled brain into the settings where the patients need them easily and, and, and effectively. And so InTouch was, so, so to answer your question, I think the idea was to go to something much more general purpose than surgery and then and then try to build a market uh, like that. And, and after kind of trying many different use cases where we hit our stride was in telestroke. And so at the time, we're talking about 2007, 2008, 2009, in, during that period of time, you know, stroke was the third leading cause of death, the first leading cause of long-term disability, and only 5% of patients were treated properly. So why is that? Well, it's because 95% of patients weren't able to be seen by a stroke neurologist quickly enough. And that's where met telemedicine came in. And so then from there, we kind of expanded and expanded. So when you started in touch, what was the original vision to by the time that 2007 to 2009 timeframe came in where you, you, like you said, you hit your stride, you knew that telestroke was the area where you could start making that bigger impact. What was the original vision to what was the later vision? I'm always yeah. curious from a startup perspective, because you know how many startups start with one thing and they end up pivoting to almost a full 180. <laughs> you know, so that that's an excellent question. And it's uh, one which is, I think, you know, all entrepreneurs go through, I thought telemedicine, well, you're just getting the right expertise, the right place at the right time, very effectively. And so you should be able to improve quality, lower cost. Great. Okay, good. And, and, and so you, you're starting at that level, but that's 10,000 feet. So how do you get it down to ground level? And that's, that's kind of the journey of being a, an entrepreneur in a sense. And so, um, you know, we went through many different types of uh, perturbation. So for example, we tried to do surgical rounding because many of us came from a background of surgery. And one of the use cases was, hey, do early morning rounding 
of the surgical patient before the 10 o'clock census time in hospitals to try to discharge patients earlier so it frees up the bed so you can have better efficiency of the hospital. That evolved to, hey, having 24 by 7 monitoring of intensivists on ICU patients. And that's what a group called the LeapFrog group was really uh, pushing at that time. It provides better care if ICU patients can be managed by intensivists who are doctors specifically for ICU uh, type care. Then we went to Children's Hospital, which are, there's about 150 of them in the country, beaming into general purpose hospitals because most hospitals don't have all of the specialties and subspecialties of, of, um, of, child, of uh, you know, for taking care of kids. And that evolved into stroke. And so, so we went through, I guess my point is, we went through many different steps along the way trying to find the use case which customers would repeatedly buy on. And that's what we found with stroke. And when did you start in touch? It was 2002? 2003. Right 2003, right after. Yeah. So it took about four to, four to five years. I'm, I'm looking for the advice for the entrepreneurs listening to the podcast. Yeah. It, it, it takes that time to kind of... Well, down. I'm particularly slow because in both the things <laughs> I was doing, it took a long time to get, to get, you know, get some traction. Well, one thing I know that, that you were really focused on is latency um, mm -hmm. and, and getting that response time and getting that reliability, quite frankly, of if we have an in-touch machine and it's taking care of your patient, we can guarantee you that it can help you take care of that patient. It's not going to suddenly blip out when you need it. Um, when you were focused on that, and is that was that driven by the telestroke? portion of things because with stroke obviously time is money time is brain or actually had you focused on that beforehand and then that led to your learnings of stroke and the importance of time and therefore it was a natural fit from what you were already developing well so uh, uh, when you're using the word latency I assume what you meant by that was how fast the telecommunication connection is and um, there was a lot of focus on latency for the Lindbergh operation because you're doing surgery so the the surgeon's making a move like this, and then the surgical instrument better do it quickly, and then the surgeon be, be, be able to see that immediately. Um, for in-touch, where it's really more just using the cognitive capability of the physician, and, uh, and it's more interacting and observing, like a stroke, you know, the stroke neurologist is asking the patient questions, having them look around, having them stick their tongue out, and do, do things like that. Um, the latency is actually less critical. And, and I think that if you, I, I think for surgery, you probably got to stay under 150 or so milliseconds of total latency for a stroke. It can probably be a, a third of a second or something like that. And you're fine. But if you remember back at that point in time, like the 2007, 2008, 2009 period, that the, the challenge actually was, was amount of bandwidth. It wasn't actually as big an issue about latency. So first of all, you know, if you can remember internet in your home, because because lots of times the docs would be in their home, um, it, you know, it, it, to have a, a a relatively high bandwidth line in your home wasn't even that common that, at that point in time. It's very common now. So we had to work hard to make the technology work off of low latency, and so low. I mean, no, I'm sorry, low bandwidth. And so we were we were making our system work at about. 300 kilobits per second bidirectional 
uh, amount of bandwidth and which it still does today. So then actually, as homes got better internet connections, then people wanted to go on mobile, right? And so, okay, how, what kind of cell, what kind of cell connection do you have? 300 millisecond, uh, um, 300 kilobits of latency was actually tough on a cell phone during the 3G kind of time period, then with the 4G, 5G, and that's gotten better and better, but just being able to work with low, um, low bandwidth has always uh, been one of the efforts we've always pushed on. Yeah, and we've seen this at hospitals too, where they might have technically broadband, but then you go from one corridor to another and all of a sudden you have no internet. That's exactly right. And then if you have Wi-Fi and you're moving through a hospital and you're transitioning from access point to access point or into the corner of the room, you know, it turns out we, we had to work a lot on those kind of problems to make things always smooth and, and robust. Yeah. From an entrepreneur's perspective, was this a lot of trial and error? Like in those early days when you're figuring out, hey, I solved this problem and now I have another three more to go? Or was there a way to make it more holistic and more of a process that you went through as opposed to finding it out as you went along? You know, the truth of the matter is uh, there is a lot of trial and error and you wish that you could be a little more methodical. But, um, you know, I, I don't think I've been able to do that. It's been a lot of trial and error. But in, in that, I think, brings me to what I think one of the most important characteristics of an entrepreneur is, is persistence. You, you got to have what you believe in, hopefully you're correct, as a very good value proposition. And if that's true, then the market usually gives you time to be persistent, to, to evolve and evolve and evolve till you get it right. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, it, it's amazing to see how many amazing ideas almost never made it, right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you were building InTouch, I mean, InTouch is, was huge even before it was bought by Teladoc, and now it's it's growing even further. How, like, what would you say were the keys to your success, right? From that 2000, late 2000s timeframe to when it was bought by Teladoc in 2020, um, you know, we're, what were your takeaways as a leader of a company to say, hey, this these were kind of critical to our success, whether it's the team, whether it's how you approached new clients, whether it's how you approach sales and marketing, or it was just driven by product. I know you're very involved in the product, but curious as to, again, for the entrepreneurs in the audience listening and, and curious as to how do I build the next in touch? Uh, what are your thoughts and advice there? You know, so uh, I was recently listening to a podcast by Walter Isaacson the biographer who wrote, you know, the Jobs biography recently, the Elon Musk biography. And he actually mentions when he was interviewing Steve Jobs, which product was he most proud of? Was it, you know, the iPhone or the Mac or whatever? And I guess Steve Jobs says his team. And, and I, I think that's, you know, that's clearly the most important thing is the people that you start assembling together uh, having the right skill sets, but also having the right chemistry across the team to be able to tackle the inevitable challenges that any new org organization faces as they're trying to grow. But then when you talk about kind of all the things, which, you know, is it the product, is it the market, is it the financing, whatever, it's actually, it's all of them. And, and, and part of the challenge of leading a, a new organization is keeping all of those things in balance. 
you know, when you, you know, you're building the product first generally, or you, and, and then you're working to raise money in order to keep building it. When you start bringing in commercial people, when you start bringing in perhaps regulatory or quality people, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, and that's, you know, that, that's, I think a, a big question and it's probably different depending upon the different uh, organizations people are trying to build, but that's, that's really hard uh, to get right and optimally. And I would suggest that for an early entrepreneur who's early in their career, the best advice I can get uh, give you is um, to have some people who've been around this before as mentors. That's what I was fortunate enough to do at Computer Motion, which was my first company, is I was fortunate enough to have some mentors who were, you know, a couple of decades older than I was, advise me all the way and I'd be able to be a thought partner on these things. I was doing all the heavy lifting, but they were there to be able to iterate with and, and to go, well, you know, when I had this situation, this is what I did. So, so I, I think that's, I think that that's a, a recommendation I can make. And then, um, and I know this will be helpful to entrepreneurs, especially now in this market, which has been a tough market. And actually you went through 2008, so you, you know what a tough market looks like as well. Um, what are words of advice when it feels like the going is just really, really hard and the slant is like this and you're like, I know I've got this, I know, I, I've got the product market fit, chugging along and it's just, you know, it just feels really hard. And I, I'm sure you've gone through that those days as well yourself. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, it, it is very much r running a marathon or an ultra marathon. And so you just got to make sure you have enough gas to kind of keep going and go through um, these challenges. It's, it's very easy to spend money. And it's, uh, and it's you know, money is a very dear commodity to um, early stage companies. And I think that you have to be very... Um, causative with each dollar you spent and that's what you know gets you through the downturns of 2008 i think right now is a tough time for early stage companies as well and so um you just have to be very efficient with your capital yeah no completely makes sense when you were building in touch or any of your companies actually i'm curious what you consider your biggest challenge as a founder as a leader you know i i don't have a great singular answer to that mm -hmm. and i think that at different phases there are different challenges i think uh there was challenge early on like if you if i just think about in touch it's like hey this telemedicine's gonna be a big deal talk to a customer and they would say yeah why don't you go down to the basement and go past the trash cans and i think there's a doctor or whatever who he might be willing to listen to you okay that that was then and <laughs> So it's trying to get some, some recognition that what you're doing makes sense. And then as you know, telemedicine now, it's, it's not a, it, it, people don't, don't question its viability, but now there's competition, right? And so there's a lot of comp competitive forces in order to, um, and, you know, Teladoc works hard to, uh, to make sure that you know, the marketplace appreciates that there's very, there's differentiated technology and differentiated strategies and stuff. So there, it, there's different phases. Um, uh, there's different challenges at different phases. 
I was talking to um, a gentleman recently uh, who was talking about, um, you know, the different phases of a company and the different pe kind of people you need or the different vehicle you need to get through it. And he was saying how, yeah, there's a phase in the, of a company where you're, 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 on a, you're driving through the jungle. Then there's another phase where you're on a kind of a nice dirt road. And then there's another phase where it's a paved road. And then there's another phase where you're in a super highway and you, you need, you need different um, capabilities at each stage of those uh, growth um, phases. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. And I can, I can definitely resonate with any, all of those stages at some point <laughs> along, the, along the way. Um, when you look at what, you're working on with with Intesh Less Teladoc now as a Teladoc fellow. And I know you mentioned working with on how AI can make virtual care better, right? And you're you're still envisioning a better future and a better way to do things, a better way to deliver care. Um, you know, one, where did that inspiration come from in terms of how you do you know do or don't think AI has a role to play in virtual care? And what are you most excited about for that? Because I know that's the buzzword of the day these days. Everything is AI this and AI that. So I'm curious where your thoughts are on that. Well, so I've actually long believed uh, for, you know, a decade now that um, AI was going to be very applicable to uh, virtual care and telehealth. And, and the thing which made me um, believe that early on, it's because so right now you and I are talking through a digital medium. And the fact is that every all of our interactions how we're looking at each other, what we're saying, even expressions is being processed by the computer um, that we each have here. And it's, and so therefore it's, the computer has access to all of the data that you and I are creating. And furthermore, it can, it has certain advantages. Like it can tell just by the direction of the audio that I'm talking now. And then when you talk, the direction of the audio goes the other way. And so there's all, so my point is, is that the data is set up very uh, intrinsically to be able to be leveraged and analyzed and taken advantage of. And so the kinds of things which, um, you know, probably going back a decade that uh, some of my teammates were working on is like right now, I can't see your heart rate, okay? But the fact of the matter is there's an ever so slight pulsing on your skin that a computer can pick up and it could tell me that your your heart rate is 60 right now and your respiration rate is 12 because the computer has a lot better uh, sensory capabilities than we have so so that was some of the early thinking around AI but as things have moved forward and now with the generative AI boom and the, and the large language model capabilities of these generative AI models, I mean, there's all kinds of capabilities that uh, where AI can enhance uh, virtual care. So, for example, and uh, many organizations are working on this, like if you're the doctor, I'm the patient, it can actually automatically track our entire dialogue. It can create a note out of that so it can relieve you from needing to do all the documentation afterwards. It can actually do things like you know, Microsoft is really pushing these notions of a co-pilot, where if you're analyzing me, you'd have a little AI agent there, which would be able to say, hey, maybe you should be thinking of schizophrenia or something like that uh, when talking to me, or me as a member, 
I can, it can actually help me with information right on the fly. And then further, uh, a big area Teladoc's in is chronic disease management. And, that, and, and, and in that case, the physician can often perhaps be for lower, lower acuity situations and more periodicity, it can actually be an AI agent, which is communicating directly with the, with the member in order to keep his or her diabetes in check, make sure that yeah, um, he, or, he or she is weighing themselves effectively, making sure they're eating at the right time, sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just, it, it, it's gonna be um, very, very enabling um, to be building AI on top of the virtual care kind of frameworks that are already out there. Yep, no, that completely makes sense. Um, as you think about how you look forward to where medicine will be in the next 10 years, right? And it's changed so much from a decade ago when you first started or a little over a decade ago when you first started in touch. Um, how do you think about innovation and how do you plan for innovation? Because one of the, you know, it's, it's always about being the best prepared for what the next step could be. How do you think about that from an innovator's perspective? Uh, the way I think about innovation, I think it was Einstein who said like knowledge is like a sphere. And so the known knowledge is inside the sphere and the unknown knowledge is outside the sphere. And the sphere itself is the edge of knowledge. And so, you know, so what that metaphor shows is that first of all, it's not like everything's figured out. There's more and more things to figure out because of the sphere keeps getting bigger. And, and the way I think about innovation is you have to first to get to the edge of the sphere along some dimension, whatever dimension it is that you want to be, become an expert and help in. And then you try to push past to make the sphere a little bit larger in some dimension. And that, that's, how, that's how I think about innovation and try to guide my own thoughts. And you've moved now from telehealth. You, you've become part of the World Telehealth Initiative. So you're taking everything you've developed and learned and, and created at Teladoc, InTouch, even potentially computer motion, and taking it to the international sphere uh, with Teladoc kind of supporting you all with uh, the resources. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how much of that is deploying what's already in the U.S. versus potentially, I don't know, is it creating new methods and delivery capabilities because we don't face the same issues in the U.S.? Is there stuff, lessons we could learn both ways? You know, so I think it's, I think people mostly know that over the half the world's population doesn't even have access to healthcare. So we're actually very fortunate to live in this country and to have been born in the situation we've been born in, but there is half the world which wasn't so lucky. One of my board members at InTouch, he, he, he's 10, 15 years older than me. He said, there's kind of three phases in a career. There's survival. When you first get out of school, you're just, just trying to get going. Then hopefully you'll hit success. And that's where, you know, you know, you can buy a house. You don't have to worry about, you know, your bills, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're so fortunate to be successful enough, you can move into significance. And significance is when you're trying to just do something good, regardless of kind of return on investment things. So it's clear, it, it's, it's been clear to me for a long time that telehealth, although it's 
very useful in the developed world for things like telestroke and other things we've, we've kind of touched about, touched on. Where it can really help is the under-resourced half of the world. So in 2017, my co-founder Sharon Allen and I st stood up a nonprofit. It's called World Telehealth Initiative. And world, so it's a separate organization. It's a separate 501c3, <clears throat> where we went to the InTouch board and now the Teladoc board, and said, "Hey, will you help support this nonprofit by letting us use your telehealth technology for free?" And they said yes. And so World Telehealth Initiative gets free access to, you know, the 200 plus million dollars uh, invested into today's telehealth telemedicine technology. And then World Telehealth Initiative goes and, and finds clinicians who want to volunteer their time to help people in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or other areas where the people are in less fortunate situations. And it's turned out that there's a lot of people who want to volunteer in this manner. It, it's actually blown me away. We have 1,300 volunteers. We're located in 16 countries now with over 50 clinics where we're bringing 50 different medical expertise from neonatal care to infectious disease to gynecology to different types of surgery, et cetera, into communities in Ethiopia, Rwanda, Kenya, Cambodia, Vietnam, even into Ukraine, et cetera. And so that's what um, World Telehealth Initiative does. And in terms of the impact that you've seen there versus any lessons you can bring back, because I know that uh, for my own volunteering days, it's you have to be creative and you have to think on your feet because mm -hmm. it was just, I mean, the rules are different. The, 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 the ground rules are different. The, the way that people communicate is different. The way that people, the risks that people are willing to take or not take are different. Um, and the communication styles are different among many other things, I'm sure. So I'm curious if during this time period where you have been able to deliver so much good, um, have you found that that good is also reciprocal in the sense of you've taken lessons away that we can bring back home and could or should apply back in the U.S. as well? Very much so. And in fact, um, you know, we're, we have clinician after clinician, first of all, say this is the best part of my day. And secondarily, they say, yeah, this is how I, I learned this or I learned that from my partner in um, Uganda or or uh, Nigeria or something like that. <laughs> you, you may know that 28% of US physicians are foreign born and many mm -hmm. of them are from uh, under-resourced areas of the world. And they really long to help back to where the country where they uh, might have come from, uh, but they stay here to make a better life for themselves and their family. So this is a way for them to do both. And it's been, it's been very meaningful. What's the next steps, the next plan for World Telehealth Initiative? Well, I, I think what's interesting is we're building a technology platform where at the, um, at the foundational level, we get the telemedicine technology for free. But to scale, so today, I think I mentioned we have 50 clinics and 12 or 1300 clinicians, but if we want that to become 500 or 5,000 clinics, because there's definitely enough need of that. And we want 100, 
instead of 1,300, but maybe 13,000 or 130,000 clinicians, we need to build a platform, um, call it like an Uber or Airbnb type of platform, which is matching the two sides more automatically, which is able to um, foster a community where these volunteer clinicians are matched with the under-resourced communities on the type of skill set that they want. And so that's, that's, that's kind of the, the next phase of WTI. That's fantastic. I could see so many ways that could be helpful, both from a recruiting perspective, but also just a more efficient care delivery perspective. Because I know I'm from India, but, um, you know, there's many places in the world where people have to travel to get healthcare, And to know that when you make the journey to that clinic, that you can see the doctor that you're meaning to see as opposed to, hey, come back in a week, a day, two days, whatever is, is important. That's right. That's fantastic. Can't wait to hear more on that. And that brings us to Savada, which is, this is, this is what like the whirlwind tour of your amazing career. Um, you have not given up on robot, robotic surgery. I know it was too early back in 2001, but with Da Vinci and other players now, you know, making robotic surgery and, and joystick surgery, if you will, as my brother jokes, he's a bariatric surgeon and is on Da Vinci all day long, uh, is, is common now for, for many surgical specialties. And then the question is, where do you see that going potentially now that there is appetite and there is acceptance on so many levels, right, for virtual care, including procedurally? Um, and we saw during COVID that without procedures, you know, it's, it's hard for hospitals to keep their doors open financially if, and operationally. So curious as to what your thoughts are now today, as opposed to, you know, 20 plus years ago and what's changed to make it um, something that you think can be successful. Yeah. So thanks for the question. You know, COVID obviously um, pushed forward the concepts of telemedicine dramatically in those uh, few years where today I, I would think that, you know, the person you inter- you just ask off the street, what do they think about telemedicine? A few years ago, they would go, what? what? What's that today? They would go, oh, I love it. Because, I mean, it's actually, it, it's been shown to be well adopted by patients. Surgery uh, is, um, is kind of another level, a next step of telemedicine. And when I, you know, I started learning about the challenges the hospitals were having because of because of surgery shutting down due due to COVID, I started thinking: Is it time that telesurgery can now become a reality in the world? And and I think the short answer is yes. I think that you know if you think about the advancement since 2001, since the Lindbergh operation, if you think about the advancement of telecommunications. You think about the advancement of robotic surgery. You think about the advancement of virtual care or telemedicine. And you think about the advancement of the regulatory and policy environment we're in. Those four things have moved in the last 22 years to where now uh, I believe telesurgery is commercially viable. So what's the value proposition of telesurgery? It's that you can get the best surgeon for your particular uh, indication wherever you are. I think that you know it's it's well known in the healthcare community that practice makes perfect, 
And, you know, if you, if you or I are to ever get, get surgery, and I'm sure your brother would uh, agree with this statement, is like the first question you ask the surgeons, how many times have you done this? And how often are you doing it? And if the number is too low, they just can't be good at it. And so how do you tell a surgery can help um, centralize the procedures into the procedure lists, procedure lists who are competent at doing that particular kind of surgery. And that's, that's, that's good for everybody. I mean, it's actually, you know, there are surgeons who are out in the community who do, you know, 10 or five of a particular type of surgery a year or two. And it's the patient does that because they have no alternative when, when it really takes 50 a year to keep your competency going, that's no longer going to be um, an issue. And, and it's been well studied that if you are operated on by a low volume surgery, your chances of, you know, complications go up two to three X, the costs go up two to three X. And, and the interesting thing too, is there's a shortage of surgeons. So it's actually, you know, everything kind of works in favor of this kind of telesurgery capability. So that's why I decided to uh, start with my co-founder, Cynthia Perrazzo, uh, a company called Savato Health. And is that going to be uh, mostly a hardware thing or is it going to do all the clinical services as well? Because I know one of the things that hospitals find hard is to find that qualified, experienced surgeon. And then you have, like with Telestroke, where you panel them, you know, privilege them at multiple hospitals so they can do these surgeries. Is it the full kind of black box solution or is it going to be a situation where you have this amazing device, but then the hospitals are left with? Because I've seen that happen, too, unfortunately. Yeah, so we're not going to build a robot, but we're building the infrastructure to allow anybody surgical robot, whether it's an Intuitive or Medtronic or Johnson & Johnson, or and there's a whole plethora of early stage uh, companies, we're going to allow any of their robotic systems, which were all designed to work together where the surgeon's next to the patient. This infrastructure is going to allow the two sides to be separated so that the surgeon can be far away from the patient. But now that the patient is far away from the surgeon and surgery is just one step of this whole taking care of the situation of the patient, because there's all this preoperative workup stuff and there's all this postoperative follow-up stuff. And we're building a software platform which allows the orchestration of that patient through the sequence of events in the care process that would have happened if they would have gone into the surgeon's um, uh, healthcare system instead. And so it, it's really, it's a software and networking platform that we're building, which any surgical robot can attach to. There's going to be a lot of training involved as well and change management, uh, but we're not intending to like hire surgeons and staffs and stuff like that. That's so, and one of the areas that if you haven't already come across it, I know you did during your in-touch years is when you do something so revolutionary and it's convincing the CMO or the CEO or whoever that stakeholder is at that site to take a chance on something so new and so different. How have you found success doing that? Because I know, again, you can have the greatest things since sliced bread, but if no one uses it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. So part of the initial work we did during the startup phase of this company, as in even pre-incorporating, 
is we interviewed probably close to 50 healthcare systems. So we did, we did a large um, sampling of the market. And what's interesting here is, you know, surgical robots are really sold to the surgeon and then the surgeon has got to really usually pressure the administrators to buy the robot. In this case, in our interview, call it roughly 50 health systems. What's so interesting, not only the surgeons are interested in this capability, but the administrators are. And there's, there's, you know, there's, it's tremendously beneficial to have administrators buy in early as opposed to uh, only the surgeon. And then you have to really work on the administrator. So, so you might ask, well, why, the, why are the administrators buying in so easily? It's because it helps them manage their health system better. If you think about um, most health systems, there's very few single hospitals. There's, you know, there's many, especially IDNs, they can be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 200 hospitals all under the same corporate umbrella. And all those hospitals are not created equally. And they can actually use the clinical staff of one or more of their flagship flagship hospitals and then spread those capabilities across their entire system that actually they view as a huge benefit to their healthcare system and to help their patients get the care that they're looking for where they live, as opposed to having to drive hours to some to one of the flagship hospital. Nope, that completely makes sense. And that's that exactly is the key that every entrepreneur I know looks for, which is how do I get that buy-in from that oh so critical you know, project sponsor or commercialization lead or what have you to kind of drive that initial adoption. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I know I've taken up so much of your time today and thank you so much for sharing your afternoon. I'm gonna leave you with one last question, which is you've worked on so many things. What has, if you look back on it or you're looking forward either way, what has you the most excited for either what you've already developed or what you plan to develop? What are you most proud of? What are you most excited about? You know, I, I've had a, I, I consider myself as having a very fortunate career, and I actually um, am very excited if I, as I look backwards to the things we did at Computer Motion and InTouch, you know, Teladoc, and WTI. And I'm, I, you know, I, I very much look forward to what's happening uh, with Savato. So I, I don't, you know, that's not much of an answer to your question because it's kind of all of the above. But I think that, you know, if, if there's a bit of advice I can pass on, it's, you know, find the things you're passionate about and stick, stick to them. And so I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that, and I continue to do that. I mean, I, I've had a fortunate enough career where I don't have to be doing a Savato, or, and I certainly don't have to be w, doing a, a World Telehealth Initiative, but I love it. I love doing these new innovative things, which I believe add value to society. Well, I mean, that's an answer in and of itself that you're still just as excited about what you're doing today as you were 20 years ago, which is amazing. And there's a little bit less stress now too, because um, <laughs> early on there's, there's higher stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Wong, thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.